Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hiya, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about a really wonderful book called The Illegal City, Space, Law and Gender in a Delhi Squatter Settlement by Ayuna Datta. The book is published by Ashgate. Ayuna is Associate Professor at the University of Leeds, and the book is a real in-depth study about the way law intersects with gender and space in everyday life of people who live in a slum. Before we get onto the interview itself, I have to apologise for the sound quality in the interview. My microphone is playing up and I sound a little bit like a chipmunk, but Iona sounds perfect, So, and she talks most of the time, so I hope it's not a problem. Okay, so without any further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome Iona to the podcast. Thanks a lot for coming on and thanks a lot for your book. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Okay, great. So before we talk about the book itself, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, what your previous research interests are, and uh, how it led up to the writing of this book. Okay. um, Yeah, I have always been interested in in feminist research. And uh, the reason why I began to write this book was because after the research that I did around this um, topic, I found that there was a lot of relevance uh, and a lot of connections between gender, the the performance, but also the construction of gender and law. That is how law is lived in everyday life. So, um, I mean, my interest really started with looking at the politics of space and power and its intersections with gender. But it's very quickly came down to looking at the specific aspect of law and illegality. Um, In terms of other work, I mean, uh, most of my research is around urban politics. uh, So I'm very much an urban studies scholar, but much of my work is um, ethnography. And um, again, when you're looking at power uh, and the sort of power that I'm interested in is really the everyday politics of power rather than just state power or sovereign power. I like to see how these two come together. Yeah, so um, I would say I'm, I'm very much a feminist geographer. In, in a very open-ended sense, um, working working on these kinds of issues from different angles. But I'm very much interested in everyday life issues, really. Great, great. And uh, the book itself yeah, is an examination of how the law interweaves itself in everyday life in yeah. this particular squatter settlement in Delhi. But before we talk about the this, this settlement in depth, I thought it'd be useful to... to talk through some of the terms of yeah. some of the concepts which are used in the book. So you make a distinction in the introduction between something being illegal and something being informal. So can you mm. tell us why, why is that important for us to understand? Uh, yeah, I think it goes back to how I started describing myself. I've been always interested in slums. Um, and this, this is not just a cursory interest. It was also part of my education because I uh, my first training was in architecture. And so you do read a lot about slums and informal settlements and how to make life better in these places. Um, and a lot of the interventions in these places are either material 
or or social. So material would be about architecture, making different types of housing for the urban poor, or social in the kind of gender empowerment programs that we've usually seen. So, I mean, that's where I came from. So informality was a very, very important concept that I dealt with from uh, from very early on, I'd say from my undergraduate studies and so on. And the and, and that really led me to looking at the slum in question, looking at everyday life in slums. But when I when I was actually doing my research, when I was talking to people there, it somehow emerged that informality wasn't really the main issue there because because everyday life is informal for them. And that's kind of a reality. But at the point that I was doing my research, it was law and illegality that became a very, very important issue. And that very quickly brought me to think more about um not just the distinction between illegality and informality, but also the kind of connections between the two. And and that, I think, is, is important because informality and informal settlements, these are stuff that is written about a lot in development studies, um, in, in uh, planning and so on. But informality is really about doing things outside formal structures of the state. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're illegal as well, because even the urban elite engage in informality, even the state engages in informality. And, and I mean, certainly different scholars have written about the fact how the state actually creates informality in order to exert sovereign power over its territories and populations. So for me, the the notion of illegality was actually something that needed to be identified and um, extracted from this notion of informality because not everyone who is informal is illegal or not every settlement that is informal is illegal and and not every illegal settlement is informal Mm -hmm. so if you think about particularly elite gated housings of the sorts that's happened around delhi in in uh, the, the farmhouses particularly most of these are illegal they're in violation of planning norms but they're not necessarily informal they're all planned and uh, and and they've they've all got connections to sanitation, water, and so electricity, and so on. So the, there is there is somehow always in the literature uh, a kind of subsumption of the two concepts of illegality and formality. And the assumption is that the people who are informal are also illegal, and they're also the urban poor. And and this kind of conceptualization, I think, is also something you see in the UN documents, the World Bank documents, where it's, it's these two terms are always put together. So for me, um, illegality was a concept that if could if it could be drawn out from informality, it I thought it would show us something quite different about everyday life in the slums than we had seen earlier through the lenses of uh, informality. So that, that's why I used the word illegal quite consciously. And, and when I, um, I, I identified it quite earlier on that it was important to understand what illegality does to, to people in, in, the, in the slums. And also then how they deal with this notion, how they react to this, because they, they might even try to become legal through informal means. So again, those those things uh, are not necessarily convergent. They they have overlaps, but they're also quite divergent concepts at a certain level. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's it's really important. You see it so often in the literature. This the word informal is just thrown out there as if it's this all encompassing mm. notion. It's the uh, which of course is it's 
it's, it is different than illegality, and that's what you show very mm. well in the book. So I was wondering, still on a on a general level, before before we get to the ethnography itself, how, how does gender intersect with law and legality in mm. this way? Mm-hmm. Uh, Good question. <laughs> gender. Well, I I use the lens of gender because, of course, I'm, I'm I've always done research with gender and and gender and space and the politics of gender and space is a scholarship that's quite rich, in fact. So I was very interested in that, and also um, the notion of of gendered empowerment in slums in some slums is something that again is a very developmental uh, analysis and a develop is part of the developmental literature. Um, however, genders and inter- gendered intersections with law is something less written about. And again, it was really um, a kind of a grounded understanding of what was going on and what was being said to me by the participants that I was interviewing and observing in the slum itself. And primarily, I think the gendered intersection with law and space becomes critical in that particular context, because if you take the the, the legal sphere in India, the legal sphere is quite unique in that it allows for people to be equal citizens in the public realm. So you have gendered um, laws against gender discrimination in employment, in, in terms of uh, access to spaces, access to facilities and so on. And yet, when you come into the private realm within the home, gendered rights are really defined through religious Laws. So you have the Muslim law and you have the Hindu law. And, and that sort of creates a, a kind of really interesting disjunction or uh, contradiction sometimes in performing one's gender identity, particularly when you have to ask the law to help you out or the law, you, you have to access the law in order to get certain entitlements or, or certain benefits. So how you perform your gender identity in order to fit the law, which would then be able to give you those benefits, is where gender comes in, and it's where gender plays a very important role. And so that gender identity becomes a really interesting negotiation of how to present oneself both to the family but all, uh, and the neighborhood, but also to the state and the agents of the state, like the police the, the uh, and uh, even people like the NGOs, the municipality officers and so on. So actually I saw with talking to the women and the men, the, the relationship of gender with law was very, very um, significant, particularly in the case of a slum, which has been, um, which has been, described as an illegal settlement, primarily because this was built on public land and people didn't have any rights to the land itself. They didn't have any rights to property. And so therefore, they couldn't really argue for a gendered right to the house. But yet, they could argue for gendered rights through other means, for example, through, um, you know, having inheritance rights to something that their father or their father-in-law had built and would might be able to be entitled to resettlement if the slum was built. And so as a woman, you might be able to get gendered rights to that. So there were various ways in which gender was argued for, gender was performed, gender was, um, you know, constructed in order to use the law to to their benefit. And I can I can just go on forever about this, but I think in, in slums, uh, just to be very brief, I think in slums, gender was a very important gender had a very important relationship to law uh, both in the home and and outside 
Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. You, you use this phrase in, in Chapter 1, lawmaking violence, following, mm. following Benjamin, and you, and you say that the Indian constitution is involved in this lawmaking violence. So can you tell us a little mm. bit about what this, what this means and, and how, mm. does this, yeah, how is this violence then brought into the lives of, of, the, of the Slum inhabitants? Yeah, I mean, all constitutions are involved in lawmaking violence, and that's what Walter Benjamin says. Uh, he talks about the two types of violence in law. One is the lawmaking violence, which is the initial moment of constitution of the law. And the second is the law maintaining violence is the time is the moment when um, the enforcement of law actually takes place, when when subjects are brought to comply with the law. So Indian constitution is no different. So it's, it's part of a lawmaking violence. And, and again, I'm following Walter Benjamin's cue here in terms of thinking about what violence actually is. And in his case, uh, and in most of the literature about lawmaking violence and the force of law, for example, uh, like Shakta Reader's work, violence is not just physical hurt and suffering. Violence is also something that is symbolic and that also has power. And uh, in the context of the Indian constitution, the lawmaking violence was a violence of fixing subjectivities. And these subjectivities were about um, the the marginalized, historically and socially marginalized communities, such as the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. And also the lawmaking violence in terms of uh, how women were to be, men and women were to be treated in, in, the, in terms of law, how different minority communities were to be treated in terms of law. So it was, it was a violence, not just in terms of impacting grief and suffering, but it was a violence in terms of a symbolic construction of what being a woman actually meant under Indian constitution, what being uh, a, a low caste means under Indian constitution. And therefore, that is violence in the sense that it produces a a relationship between one's subjectivity in the way that is performed in everyday life and the the words, the exact words in the Indian constitution, the articles in the Indian constitution. And that relationship is something that determines how one, again, performs one's identity as, as a gendered being or as a caste being or as a religious being, and that's because it relates to those words that has been written down in the Indian constitution. Now, in terms of how that law comes as the lawmaking violence becomes part of the lives of the settlements, this goes back to the earlier question that I was answering around gendered intersections with law and space. So if you again think about law in the sense of law dealt with in the home. Now, a lot of the domestic violence within the home is determined by gender-sensitive laws in India. However, a lot of the civil laws, such as marriage, child custody, inheritance, and so on, is determined by Hindu law or Muslim law. So these these kinds of the, the differences in these types of law, in the way that law has been made, enacts a certain type of, of symbolic violence into the lives of the people who live in these settlements. Because when you go to the police to claim your rights under the domestic violence law, uh, you are seen as a certain type of subjective being in which the law or the Indian constitution is actually written on your body in terms of how the police then would react to your 
uh, claims in the police station. And this also then relates to, let's say, in the neighborhood or community organizing. For example, how community organizing is made legitimate by law, because uh, there are certain community organizations that can go and make themselves legitimate by um, putting themselves down, registering themselves under the high court, the Delhi high court. So then those then those organizations, social organizations become the legitimate speakers, legitimate voice of the settlement. And yet there would be other forms of social organizing, which is not recognized per se through formal law. And yet they might have a different type of symbolic power. So all of this creates a very interesting space or a very interesting terrain of both of symbolic, but also physical and material violence. In the case, in this case, material violence is how all of that then culminates in the demolition of the squatter home, or not, mm-hmm. and how you how you uh, prevent or or cope with the demolition or the impending demolition of the squatter settlement is a form of violence in itself that that you have to live through in your everyday life. This anxiety and despair that you have to live through, um, waiting for um, the the municipality bulldozers to come anytime and and demolish your home. So there is a material violence that comes at the end of it. And, and the lawmaking violence has produced this material violence, has produced forms of symbolic power that enable this material violence to be enacted on their homes. And this is the home that is the space of the, of the family, of, of the neighborhood, of, of everyday life. So I'm, I'm probably I'm not giving a very simple answer to this, but, but violence, as I saw it, and in terms of lawmaking violence, actually pervades in every nook and cranny of the of the squatter settlement, both in the home, in the streets, in the in the lanes, when they go to defecate in the open land, where they go to fetch water from, how they actually negotiate the gendered power relationships within the family in terms of who becomes the breadwinner and who doesn't, all of that um, has direct relevance to how the Indian constitution determines who has or who doesn't have the power uh, of equal opportunities or who who can only have certain amenities if they define themselves as Hindu or as women or as low caste and so on. And so therefore, for the, the people in the settlements, aligning themselves to these constitutional-based subjectivities, very fixed identity subjectivities, becomes quite important, especially if they have to negotiate for entitlements from the state. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. No, it's a, it's a complicated answer, but a very good answer. And, it, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm happy you mentioned waiting. I mean, this is this was this runs through the book in a way as a, this sort of anxious waiting which goes on. And I suppose mm. one of the sort of yeah overarching waiting is this waiting for urban development. You know, Delhi has these urban development policies, and you trace these um, since independence and and how this is so important for legally constructing or illegally constructing slums, both rhetorically and yeah, physically as well. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yeah, Delhi's development trajectory. Hmm. Um, the de- <laughs> Delhi's development trajectory, in short. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 60 years I, in five minutes, yeah. Yes. Okay, so... I think, I mean, in short, what, what would be useful to start with is to suggest that the entire master planning system in Delhi has been through a system of zoning and bylaws. And most of those zoning and bylaws do not allow for, and in fact, none of those zoning and bylaws allow for the, the, the possibility of informal settlements. 
So the moment informal settlements come on ground, they become illegal. The, the Delhi's master planning has gone through several stages and it wasn't such a critical issue before for the for the people living in slums and informal settlements, primarily because Delhi's master planning, although it was set in the maps and drawings and diagrams, ratified and legalized and everything, there was a huge informal structure there, which was about political patronage, corruption and so on, which allowed for people to exist outside of the master planning guidelines and therefore uh, exist relatively confident that as long as they were paying the regular bribes to the police and as long as their political patronage was intact and they were voting for the right politicians, they would not be removed. There were, there are, were two moments in Delhi's urban development trajectory. One was the moment of the emergency when huge slum renewal and slum uh, redevelopment, slum removal from the, the city center happened. And this was the emergency that was between 1977 and 1979 when um, the, the ruling government led by Indira Gandhi went into city beautification schemes. And that was, um, that, that was double-sided. So the people who were living in squatter settlements could only get resettlement properties if one male member of their family would undergo sterilization. So the sterilization scheme and the city beautification scheme ran side by side. And there's been lots written about this uh, in terms of how families themselves negotiated who in the family would get sterilized and so on in order to achieve uh, or in order to receive the resettlement benefits. So that was one moment. And that was when I think uh, Delhi's urban landscape was uh, radically altered, in particularly Delhi's informal uh, landscape was radically altered because slums were removed from the city center and brought out to the peripheries of the city into resettlement colonies. And, and then it uh, went on for quite some time in terms of House quarters then settled themselves, and the, and the settlement that I was actually looking at was a settlement that had come up in the shadow of these resettlement colonies around that time, because these were the people who weren't allowed or weren't eligible for resettlement during the Indian emergency in the late 1970s. And then there was a relative peaceful time, uh, and I'm saying peaceful with a huge caveat, of course, because there were always sporadic incidents of demolition. But the the next big uh, incident happened uh, post-2000 when there was a court ruling, a Supreme Court ruling, that slum dwellers were basically illegal. And as illegal, there were pickpockets of urban land and they were therefore not eligible for any kind of resettlement if their homes were demolished. So that produced another huge wave of demolition, particularly along the river, the Yamuna River, which flows through Delhi. And this was also obviously overlapping with the time that Delhi was gearing up for the Commonwealth Games. And that was really the kind of beautification scheme that was about creating Delhi fit for, for foreigners to come in and see the Commonwealth Games at that time. So the, these were the, I mean, uh, to me, these are the two moments when huge material restructuring and, and transformation of the landscape actually happened. Now, the slum that I was looking at was, was part of this second 
radical restructuring. I mean, they had come into this area in the first part, which was the 19, late 1970s, but in the second restructuring post-2000, they were really waiting to be demolished because they, they knew that they would be demolished at a certain time. And that was because they were illegal. They had no real rights to the land that they were on. Other slums, perhaps city center slums, which had sort of old settlements, dilapidated condition, were not in the same condition, same context of waiting. However, this one was in the same context. And this was actually one of the very few slums that was left behind after this demolition drive in the post 2000s. Mm-hmm. And that was primarily because it was, again, quite hidden away from the main tourist uh, routes that the Commonwealth visitors would take. So this slum was in that situation. This and a few others were where they were located in areas that was not uh, highly uh, prime, which was not prime estate, basically, real estate. And and therefore, they were not that important for the the Delhi government to remove them. And so these, these slums were the ones who knew that they would be demolished and yet didn't know when they would be demolished. And that's what led to a lot of anxiety. In, in the in the slum itself. The, the rhetoric and force of urban development was a very significant power or a very significant uh, force in creating that anxiety because there was a continuous rhetoric about removing slums, slum-free cities, city without slums, and so on and so forth, which, which is both coming from the UN and the bigger global discourses, but also in Delhi, in India, about creating slum-free cities. So it kind of created the sense, both amongst the urban middle classes, but also amongst people who were living in these settlements, that slums are not going to exist in Delhi ever. And that in itself is a myth because it still exists. The the settlement that I studied is still there and they're still waiting to be demolished. And perhaps they will keep waiting for many more years before they will be. And the reason that they are still that way is because uh, it's impossible to think about offices or malls or or uh, metro stations coming up on that particular land because of its location, really. So in, in a way, its location is built into the production of the anxiety that, that comes in this particular slum. And the force of urban development is is very much there because now Delhi has entered this new phase of a new master plan, master plan 20, Delhi 2021, in which now the 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 practice the the proposed practice is that slums will not be demolished however the existing slums that are there in the city are going to be redeveloped into high rise housing and that in itself is a big problem we can talk about that later but for those living in slums it's something that is quite unacceptable and also for the state to actually build this is is very, very difficult in the sense of finances. So it has to be done through private sector initiatives. And again, the, the locality, the location makes it really, really difficult for them, for this particular slum to be redeveloped, even under the current master plan, which suggests that slums shouldn't be removed outside the city. They shouldn't be removed from the place that they are actually in, uh, but put in high rise, high rise buildings. Buildings. So in, in, in every kind of way, and I think in every stage of the transformation of urban development and master plans of Delhi, some slums lose out more than others. And I, I think that was also part of the reason I was writing the book is that somehow in the literature, all slums are seen as the same, mm-hmm. but they're not. 
and it creates it creates even competition between slums because certain slums are felt as more privileged than others. And whether they're really privileged is, of course, another question that we might ask ourselves because the slums that were removed from the the riverside and removed uh, 50 kilometers outside the city have faced enormous struggles in terms of livelihoods and employment and so on. Uh, but But those who are left behind see that as something positive because at least these people have been moved on to resettlement colonies and at least these people have become part of a legal city and at least they can now move on with their lives. Uh, however, the way that it has worked out for the current the people that I looked at was that they are really in a limbo. They don't know what the future holds for them. And and the the, the rhetoric of urban development becomes really, really important because they, it's always made out that they are illegal. They are living in an illegal slum. And and that the word illegality has has impacted. I think that impacts a lot on these people because illegality, a, a legal slum and an illegal slum has suddenly become a very different beast altogether. They've become very different spaces to live in. Mm-hmm. And, and this, ex- yeah, sorry. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, and, and saying that's exactly what you explore then in in, in mm-hmm. the third chapter is this desire to be legal, right? The, yes. the narrative of these people that they really they want to be legal, right? Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So continuing from that, they, you know, they they think that being legal is a way to become legitimate citizens, or legitimate urban citizens. So they do consider themselves as citizens, but the 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 rhetoric of illegality that has, you know, that obviously started with the master planning process, but also reinforced then by the judiciary. And the judiciary is much much stronger. The way it works in India is the Supreme Court has the power to actually pull down laws if it is if it is deemed as unconstitutional. So the judiciary has more power than the political elite and the parliament. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the Supreme Court, if it rules that slums are illegal, the Supreme Court, in fact, actually threatened the state uh, and threatened police that they would bring their army in if the, the state and the police could not clear up the slums in the city. So that was that was kind of the situation that they were coming from. So if the if the judiciary suggests that slums are illegal, then for the inhabitants, it's a really difficult terrain of struggles because now the political patronage dries up. The the police also uh, become less sympathetic. Um, and it's, it becomes really, really, really difficult for them to get by through informal means, for them to for them to even sell their informal houses because there was a black market before in selling and buying of informal housing, which was which is something that we know about in, in most of, of the global south where this happens in terms of the, the slum housing. But that sort of dried up because if that slum is going to be demolished, then who is going to buy those houses? So they can neither sell nor buy nor uh, improve the houses that they're living in. So if there's another child or another uh, family member who gets married and a new family begins, how do they create these new spaces? Because traditionally they have always added another floor or expanded a little bit on you know horizontal. But that they're not they're really reluctant to do now because, you know, that's kind of seen as a wasted investment because this house is going to be demolished in any way, in any case. So therefore, that produces the desire to be part of the legal city. So if if they are seen as legal, that is, if they have a document that shows their right to the land that they are living on, 
then they can move on with their lives. And I think it's this sense of moving on with their lives, which, which creates the desire. I mean, none of them have any, any illusions about law and illegality. None of them think that law is perfect. None of them think that law is objective and equal. Uh, most, I mean, all of them, in fact, talk about the unfairness of law and how the law is only for the rich and the law is not for them. And yet they know that if they somehow can work out in an informal way to become legal, informal or formal way to become legal, then they can move on with their lives. And that's why resettlement becomes such an attractive option for them. And also because they are, the, the slum that I was looking at was, was just across the road from uh, an older resettlement colony, the 1970s resettlement colony, which is actually very similar in condition as a slum. However, they were legal. They had deeds to their property. And, uh, so, and, and also because they could get legal connections for sewerage, water, electricity, and so on. And these people couldn't. So this, the differences are quite stark in terms of what they're entitled to and what they're not if they're illegal. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the desire, really. To, the, the desire is not to be legal for legality's sake. The desire is to be legal in order to get on with their lives because being illegal is not an option anymore in the current terrain of um, of law and power in, in Delhi and in India. Mm-hmm. You, you briefly mentioned there the, the power of the judiciary, and you have a whole chapter discussing that, but rather than mm. discussing it here, just because of time mm. constraints, I was wondering if we can move on to the second yeah. half of the book, and that's mm-hmm. when you really go in depth into the lives of, of, of people who live there. And, and uh, there's a the really wonderful chapter, I, I think it's chapter five, which is a, mm-hmm. which has this discussion of this um, women's NGO and or feminist um, campaign group, or I don't know how to phrase it, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, how, and, and the sort of work that they're doing in the, in the slum. And you talk mm-hmm. about here how, yeah, basically law is, is performed in, in, yeah. a gen, in, a, in a gendered way. So I think you tell yeah. us a little bit more about this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I looked at three different spaces for just because matters of space uh, and, and words in the book and so on. Um, there were various other spaces, but the spaces that I looked at in the book was one was the organization, social activism and political action and organization in the settlement. The second was uh, looking at specifically at spaces of water and sanitation. And the third was looking, honing in into the spaces of the home. In, in chapter five, which you're talking about, that was looking at uh, spaces of social action and organization. And uh, for me, that was, that was actually the entry point when I started with this research, because I started with the idea that I wanted to look at feminist organization in the slum. And that was also because I, w- I approached and my gatekeepers in the slum was a feminist NGO, which had been working in that slum for, for several years. So when I began, I I began with the thought that there were women in the slum who were quite empowered because they were working with this feminist NGO. They were engaging in organization. They they had uh, they had an organization which was called the Mahila Mandal, that is the collective of women. So this was the women's collective in which women were um, they had educated themselves. In fact, they knew the law very well because they assisted others in the community uh, in terms of domestic violence, child custody, and so on. So they were, they were quite important. I, I entered the, the slum thinking that this was the space that I wanted to examine. 
However, very soon it became clear that they were not the only group that was organizing. And there was also a residence welfare organization. And, and there was also a more traditional panchayat, which was the sort of old customary authority of a few uh, elderly men of upper caste Hindus. So suddenly I found myself dealing with the dynamics of these three, these three broadly, these three collectives. There were various other smaller collectives which sort of dealt with things in the slum, but also dealt with different NGOs outside the slum. But broadly, these were the three collectives I dealt with and their dynamics. And what to me was really interesting is that their, their battleground was about who could establish themselves to be legitimate organizations and hence legitimate voice of the people in the colony in the in the camp or the slum mm-hmm. so that to me was really uh, interesting and and significant also in terms of gendered performance because here you have a feminist organization which knows knows a lot about the, the NGOs, which knows how to work with the NGOs. It knows a lot about the laws. It knows a lot about the gender empowerment programs and taps into these. And however, they're not really registered under any act. And then you have the Residence Welfare Association, which has actually been democratically elected by the different people in the, in the slum. And they have got themselves registered in the high court as a, a legal entity. So you have them also trying to campaign or trying to articulate themselves as the only voice. And and what begins to emerge then is this really difficult terrain of struggles around who is the legitimate voice, but also who is the legitimate voice on account of their gender. And that to me becomes really interesting because the Residence Welfare Association's argument is that working with the city officials, working with the municipality and the politicians and so on is something that is it's in the public realm. And the public realm is a gendered realm. It belongs to men. And the women and the Mahila Mandal, the, that organization should be limiting themselves to the home and, and sorting out marital disputes. And this is where the performance of gender starts to play out very importantly because actually the terrain of struggle and the terrain of power is quite, it doesn't follow the, the route of formal legality or legalization. So what I really found was that the women actually held a lot more informal and customary power than the Residence Welfare Association, although the Residence Welfare Association, by law, was the only legal entity that could speak on behalf of the slum because it was democratically elected. So there were all these uh, fissures and connections, and um, it... it it was, it was about how gender was performed. It was about how women projected themselves as people who were speaking on behalf of other women, but also how women sometimes stepped behind in order to let the men take over because in the public realm, these men perhaps gained more credence with the police and with the, with the politicians than the women would do. So there was very interesting politics of performance visibility and invisibility in order to make things work, in order to get those connections with the electricity or connections to sanitation or water and so on, that women would actually, um, you know, uh, they would encourage the men to to take the first step, to go and, and talk to the municipality officers, even though they knew the, the rules better sometimes than the men. <laughs> and then you, you develop this like like you just mentioned before, specifically these ideas about public and private, but then also mm. 
also with what's illegal and illegal and what's the city and what's the slum, specifically uh, in terms of the struggle over both sanitation and mm. water. And a lot of this is to do with what's considered to be dirty and what's considered yeah. to be clean. So I don't know, why are these boundaries important? And then, yeah, how does this struggle play out? Hmm. Well, boundaries are important, and this is where gender comes in, because uh, gender performance and gender mm-hmm. transgression is all about boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, gender identity is, again, all about boundaries, and the boundaries became really critical when it was about sanitation and water. That's because water and sanitation is embodied as well. So in order to drink water you, you know, or to fetch water, you have to be a certain type of a person. You can't drag heavy weights if you are very petite, if you're very small. And it becomes a, a notion of, of, of performing a particular type of gendered role in order to access spaces of water. Same thing with sanitation. If you don't have toilets in the home and you need to go and defecate in the open, then it immediately brings into, into perspective gender performances and the gendered body. The gendered body, the, the women's bodies who go to defecate in the open are up for public display. And then it brings in, of course, a temporal element because, you know, they would then want to not go out during the day. They would wait till the evening to go and defecate in public land. So the boundaries that determine how one steps out of the home at what time and for what purpose is completely connected to the gendered body. And this to me was very important because of the way that dirt and hygiene also got um, weaved into this discourse, weaved into this performance. And the gendered body then became split into the gendered caste body, the gendered religious body. And so you see all, all sorts of intersectional identities coming into play when access to water becomes important. So while it is the women's duty to go and fetch water, however, that water, when accessed at the same time with lower castes, becomes a really big problem in terms of negotiating uh, the, the or thinking through the cleanliness of that water, the symbolic cleanliness of that water. And that, that was something that was also very revealing to me because that allowed then uh, people to not... To not uh, um, you know, access certain types of water and to therefore go to other types of spaces which might be more difficult to access, but yet these were spaces that didn't have the low-cost bodies accessing water at the same time with them. So all the struggles around sanitation and water were about um, not just women's performances, women's performances of their roles, but also the types of bodies they were, how, how dirt and hygiene was both written on the body, but also on the spaces that people accessed um, for for uh, defecating, the young body became really really important because it was the the little boys who were the first people to find out when the water was coming, and they would be circulating around the settlement to see to look out for water. So that was a really um, interesting point because it also meant that these young men that would then not go to school because they were searching for water every day mm-hmm. and that brought in a lot a, a different sense of marginality into families which somehow thought themselves as privileged because they had boys in there <laughs> and yet these were the boys who were not going to school and the girls were going to school mm-hmm. and that brought in another layer of privilege and marginality and access to education and so on and so forth so dirt and hygiene were very very important 
um, important boundary markers, not just for gender, but also for other subjectivities. And they were clearly mapped onto, again, public and private spaces. So which sorts of places were, public places were dirty, and which sort of public places were not dirty, were determined by what sort of bodies inhabited the spaces. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I remember during my own research, one, one man, a man, of course, he told me, well mm. water is, is better for women's health. And I, was yes. asked, and I asked why. He said, because oh, it's the woman who has to pull up the bucket so it keeps her healthy. And I said, oh, yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <course>. yes. <laughs> Only a man would say it. Yes. And, um, but what's, and, I, and then you sort of push, pull it even further, I guess, in, in, in your next chapter, the, mm. the, the, the bringing, bringing of law basically from, from this public sphere right inside to the domestic space. So you, you, yeah. you argue that marginalization of law in the public sphere leads to rejection of law in the home. So I was wondering, yes. how does it happen and what does it do? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it, this was the most difficult chapter for me to write. Uh-huh. And uh, not just uh, because of the the difficult narratives that I encountered within the home, but also because, you know, how do you project this chapter as, as something that is connected? How do you project this, this space of the home as something that is connected to the law? Uh, and that was because this was the space where I found the most absence of law in every other space. When you talk about sanitation, when you talk about water, when you talk about organization, social organization, when you talk about building the home, the squatter home, there's a lot of discussion about law. But when you start talking about relationships within the home, law doesn't feature at all. So I, I really thought that there was something going on here, why there was this absence of discussion of the law. And I, I, and I, I think what, to me, it suggested was, was what you said already, is that because the public law, because in the public sphere, in this, in the, in terms of urban space and urban citizenship, in terms of a, of, of a of a legal or illegal entity as being a slum resident, the law is generally seen as very very marginalizing. So therefore, the law is completely rejected when it comes to the home, and and by that, what I mean is that when there is some kind of um, transgressive or aggressive behavior or um, difficult power relations that women have to negotiate, let's say domestic violence, spousal rape, physical abuse and all, or sexual abuse and all of those kinds of things, they don't necessarily think that law is going to help them. Uh, accessing the law or approaching the police is going to help them. And they do have a, a, a lot of evidence to go by. I mean, usually, even when they have approached the police, the police usually take a moral judgment about the type of women who come to file these FIRs. So in the home, law is law is rejected, but also because it is seen that law is an arm of the state. And the state is someone who has marginalized them. State is a body or a space that has marginalized them. And therefore, allowing the law to work in the home is allowing the state to enter into the spaces of the home. And that, again, is something to be rejected. So law here is replaced by a concept of justice or informal justice. And none of them, like I said earlier, none of them equal, uh, relate law to justice in any context or form. They don't, um, they don't think law is equivalent to justice. So in the home, particularly, law is replaced completely with the notion of informal justice, which again rests on the body. So if there is uh, uh, an aggression, if there is a kind of 
um, a violation of people's rights, which they think are, uh, you know, women's rights or men's rights, then justice can be only delivered if if it is if it is enacted through the through the body of the perpetrator. So, for example, if there is a uh, uh, let's say a, a child that is raped by her father. It's not justice. It's not seen as justice if the police take the father away because the people would just say that, well, the expectation is the father would bribe the police and come back very soon. Mm-hmm. Justice is delivered when the father goes and commits suicide. And that is justice because it shows repentance rather than um, a kind of punitive sense of justice. It's not incarceration. Incarceration does not show repentance. Whereas committing suicide, taking one's own life, shows repentance, and that is justice. Um, and in the same way, there are various other contexts in which justice can happen if people who perpetrate these crimes actually show repentance in some way or the other. So if, there is, if, a, if a wife is tortured and she's sent home, justice is not the, the husband paying for child custody or paying for her alimony. Justice is when... His son doesn't recognize him as a father because he threw his mother out of the house. So not being recognized as your son to be a father is, is a justice because you didn't perform the role of a father that you were expected to. So that is justice. And this, this rejection of law in the home relates to the, the sense of wider marginalization in the city, which is where I draw the connection between the home and the city. And I think... For me, this was a very important connection to make uh, because in informal, in the literature on informal settlements, the home is almost never looked at. Mm-hmm. And domestic violence is dealt with in a completely different literature. It's dealt with in feminist literature as domestic violence. But there is a very strong link between domestic violence and wider symbolic forms of lawmaking and law maintaining violence, which is where we started with today. And the lawmaking and law law enforcing violence is completely related to notions of informal justice within the home and how the family as as a space that has moral authority surpasses law and surpasses the state. And that is something that has to be held on to because at the, in the absence of any material home, what do you have left but the family? You don't have a home. You don't have a space to live in. You cannot enact your everyday life. Your everyday life is actually illegal. It has no legitimacy for the state, no legitimacy for for the urban other urban citizens who live in the legal city. So, what does have legitimacy, and what what can be sustained is the is the family, the sense of the symbolic power of the family, not the material space of the home, not the everyday life practices that they're used to. So. The, the, the rejection of law from the home is a very, very important strategy, I think, of maintaining some sense of um, everydayness and ordinariness in a life that is marked by exclusion and illegality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, and this is, I suppose, a accumulation of the arguments that you're making throughout the book, you really, hmm. it really comes together in this, in this yes, penultimate chapter in a, in, in a very strong way. But you close the book with a, with a short chapter discussing the future. And hmm. um, the, actually, the book is full of very nice photographs taken by you. But maybe the most interesting picture is not the one from you, but by, from one of your informants who draws hmm. a sketch of her future home, of her hmm. envisioned home. So I was wondering, why did you choose to ask 
your informants to do this? And, and what do these drawings tell us about, yeah, about the slum inhabitants' lives and how they think of their future? Hmm. Um, this probably goes back to the start of this interview, actually, where I began with saying that I have an architecture background and, wow. and architects uh, love to see things visually. So I, when I began this, I began with the idea that at some point I will ask my participants to draw. Um, and I didn't really know what I would ask them to draw. First, I thought I would ask them to draw the existing conditions. And very quickly, it became clear the drawing was not something that they were very comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. But I thought at some point, because so many of the discussions was about how, how the future would shape out and where they see themselves and this anxiety about the future. So I thought that, you know, halfway through this, that it would be interesting to see how they draw their home. And so so I, I asked them to draw and not all of them drew, but most of the sketches were the kind of sketches that I presented. Uh, what What was important for me is to not take it as face value as well and therefore I think asking them to draw a future home makes it somehow it made it somehow easier for me not to equate it to something that they actually wanted rather to 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 think about it as a kind of again a new negotiation of power that they desired for the future rather than a material space that has to be in the image of what they're drawing so that's the distinction that I made in the analysis. Um, so it's not the kind of Kevin Lynch mental mapping that I wanted to do. Um, it was more to think about how do they actually visualize this relationship of power, uh, a new relationship of power in a home f- for the future. And that to me was interesting because that new relationship of power that they drew was a home in which the state would have absolutely no role to play and the state would be kept outside, um, even though that home was actually a resettlement colony that they were drawing. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, I always wanted them to draw and I always was very interested in visual methodologies. I still am. Uh, and, and to me, getting them to become a bit more participatory with, with, the, with the people I was talking to. Um, and, and they were talking to me all the time that they were drawing. So the drawings can't be seen in isolation. They have to be seen in, in terms of what they were actually saying while they were drawing. Um, and, and not interpreting them in, in any kind of um, rationalistic, objective manner rather than rather than a discourse of power was for me the most important methodological entry to seeing these as a different type of a narrative. It was a narrative in itself, but a visual narrative rather than uh, a textual or a verbal narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, we, we've, uh, yeah, we've covered a lot in, uh, yeah. in the last... In the last... 50 minutes or so I always feel bad especially when we have such a rich ethnography and so much you know theory as well to discuss and context to discuss that we we shoot through everything but um, mm. I was wondering then if, if because of this is there anything that you'd like to flag up that that I haven't covered with my questions that you'd like to bring out for the listeners no I think uh, I think you've been very comprehensive in covering everything um, I think it's been useful to talk about the concepts initially so I, I hope the latter part of the discussion when I was giving specific examples was easier to understand. But um, yeah, I'll leave you, I'll leave you to that. I think uh, I don't really have anything else that I want to flag up. Okay. Well, then I have one last question for you then. Um, it's what's your future projects now? You wrote this book in 2000 and when well, it came out in 2012, mm. you said you finished before we started recording. You told me you finished it in 2010. So I'm sure since mm. then you've been working on lots of other things. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the streams that I'm looking at comes out from that last chapter we discussed on the book, that is the relationship of law to home. And um, that last chapter particularly, as I said, it was difficult for me to write, but what it highlighted for me was the, was the notion of intimacy. And um, I'm now actually exploring that to much more uh, depth, looking at uh, a more of a theoretical way of making that connection between intimacy and the city. So one of my projects is called The Intimate City, uh, and I'm writing quite a few theoretical articles and papers around this. The hope is that they will turn into a book in, in some time. Um, I, what, what I'm interested in that is to look at how intimacy is, uh, shapes the, the, the spaces of gendered power and gendered performance in the public spaces of the city. And this is in specific relationship to the recent spate of rapes that has been happening in India, in Delhi and in Mumbai and other cities in India. And why it becomes important is that when we think about a city in a public space, we start thinking about conviviality, cosmopolitanism, openness and all of that. And yet intimacy is not seen as something that could be, again, a form of violence that is enacted in the city. So my, this, this project is about looking at how intimacy actually traverses between the private spaces and the public spaces of the city and what that means in terms of thinking about rapes as a form of intimate violence in the city, mm-hmm. but also in uh, stretching from the home to the city. So that's one, one project which has come out directly from the, from the book itself. And the second project is actually, it might seem quite unrelated, but I'm looking at... Um, forms of social and spatial justice or rather injustice uh, in terms of the new Indian urban development drive for 100 smart cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not looking at it uh, as, uh, as a technological, from a technological perspective, I'm looking at it more in terms of, again, gender justice and negotiations of power at, uh, at the level of everyday life in terms of what it would mean then to become citizens of a smart city. What does smart citizen citizenship actually entail and what forms of marginalization and negotiations of power it might lead to in the future? Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. They both, both mm. sound like fascinating projects, so we'll keep an eye out for them in the future. And um, Thank thanks, again. thanks again. Thank for this you very interview. much. And thanks for the book. It really is. I can't recommend it to people enough. It really is a is a wonderfully rich book in terms of the, the narratives of the of the characters in it, but also on a theoretical level, it gives you so much stuff to think about. So thanks again for the book and thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ian. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about The Illegal City by Iona Data. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope the microphone problem wasn't too annoying for you. And I hope you listen again next time. Ta-ra!